I called it genocide because it's become clearer and clearer that Putin is just trying to wipe out the idea of even being able to be a Ukrainian. And uh, the, mount, the evidence is mounting. The U.S. president accuses the Russian president of committing war crimes and a genocide in Ukraine. Evidence of mass executions, torture, and forced deportations seem to support the allegation, and the International Criminal Court has launched a formal investigation, which all puts us in uncharted waters. The leader of a nuclear-armed superpower has never been charged with war crimes, let alone genocide. So where do we go from here? Stick around because we've got three guests with vast experience in war crimes prosecutions to walk us through it. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Millsboro, North Carolina, is David Crane, the founding chief prosecutor at the UN Special Court for Sierra Leone, a distinct Distinguished scholar in residence at Syracuse University's College of Law. Welcome to The Vertical, David. Hey, it's my pleasure to be with you. Pleasure to have you. And joining us from Washington, D.C. is Paul Williams, the Rebecca I. Grazer Professor of Law and International Relations at American University and co-founder of Public International Law and Policy Group. Welcome, Paul. Great. Thanks, Brian. It's great to be here on The Vertical. Great, great to have you. And also joining us from our nation's capital is Mark Vlasich, a senior fellow and adjunct professor of law at Georgetown University, who serves as the youngest prosecutor in the trial of Slobodan Milosevic and in the Srebrenica genocide trial at the UN War Crimes Tribunal in The Hague. Welcome to The Vertical, Mark. Great to be here. Big great fan. to have you. So uh, in the first half of the program, I've wanted to do this program for a while because uh, we've been talking and skirting around this issue in previous uh, pre previous episodes, but I've never had a group of war crime prime prosecutors to really walk us through it. And what I what I want to do here in the first half, I want to try to dissect and assess a potential war crimes case against Vladimir Putin and others in the Russian leadership. And then below the fold, I wanted to talk about the mechanics and the politics of actually bringing such a case to trial. Now, David, you recently offered, authored a, a must-read white paper on Russian war crimes against Ukraine for the Global Accountability Project that lays out the case against Vladimir Putin and others in his chain of command. To get us started, can you lay out your arguments for our listeners who haven't read this, and if they haven't read it, shame on them. Well, again, uh, Vladimir Putin, who is the sitting head of state of the Russian Federation, a member of the UN Security Council, has chosen to uh, take a member state of the United Nations and seize it and put it back into what he perceives is the fold of the Russian Federation using medieval warfare not seen since the 12th and 13th century. His tactics are uh, the reason why we have what we call the laws of armed conflict to avoid the exact uh, horror story which he has perpetrated. And for that, uh, these violations, uh, he, is, uh, uh, he is culpable. And he right now, uh, I assess based on uh, my long-term experience in uh, prosecuting heads of state uh, as well as others, is that he has obviously committed the crime of aggression. He has violated the laws of armed conflict, which is a war crime. 
He is certainly uh, committing crimes against humanity. Uh, and uh, he is also, you know, we're looking very, very closely uh, at what, uh, what he's doing with genocide. We're starting to get statements and comments uh, that, uh, that, uh, that, that concern us uh, related to genocide. I don't think we have the uh, evidence of that yet, uh, but I, we certainly are moving in a direction of what we call incitement of genocide. Uh, and that in and of itself under the Genocide Convention is, uh, is a violation of that convention. And so there's possible prosecution for that. I mean, let's, let, I, I just have to tell you, and I mean, my colleagues know this, <clears throat> there's only been one other person who has, who has uh, investigated, indicted, and taken down the sitting head of state for the very same crimes uh, uh, that Vladimir Putin is committing. And, and um, I, I am now a guest on your program. So I come with this with kind of a uh, perspective, so to speak, uh, uh, the reality of taking down a head of state, which can be done. And I'm sure we're going to explore that a little bit further. Uh, but we got this guy. He's done. Uh, for all intents and purposes, uh, with the uh, with the International Criminal Court, uh, they will find certainly uh, reason to believe a crime has been committed and uh, and indict him. Uh, we're working hard, and I know my two colleagues uh, are, are as well, uh, getting the world to figure out how best we, in fact, take care of the crime of aggression, which is uh, something that has to be dealt with, too, uh, potentially with uh, a special court for uh, for the Ukraine, as a as an example, so you know, there's there's a whole bunch of aspects of this, but I really want to set the tone. You know, uh, we can do this. We've done this before. Uh, we have the ability. We've got the experience, the jurisprudence, and the proper rules of procedure and evidence, and an entire world united. 141 nations of the United Nations, almost 80 percent of the world has condemned what has happened in the Ukraine. So there's a political moment here to do this. If not. We've got uh, strong men around the world, uh, like crocodiles, watching. If we don't do anything with Putin, particularly related to his aggression, uh, then it's going to be an interesting world as China sits there and licks its chops on Taiwan and Kim Jong-un, uh, uh, if he can focus himself, uh, looks <laughs> south towards South Korea. I wanted to just stick with you for a moment, Dave, and kind of uh, like unpack a couple of like these different crimes that you laid out here. You you mentioned aggression, violation of the laws of armed conflict, crimes against humanity, and genocide. Can we give our listeners who are not lawyers, or at least most of them are lawyers, kind of a, a Cliff Notes version of what each of these things kind of entails? Sure, I'd be glad to do that. Uh, really, there's four there's four international crimes. Uh, and I've mentioned all four of them, aggression, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide. Uh, and what I mentioned was incitement to genocide. Uh, war crimes are just that. They're violations of the, of the laws of armed conflict, a body and, uh, of laws uh, from the Geneva Conventions and various protocols and treaties, which limit uh, what's going on in the battlefield to protect persons on the battlefield, such as the wounded and sick, prisoners of war, and, uh, and civilians. Uh, we have crime against humanity, uh, and that is a widespread or systematic attack on civilians. You don't need to have a conflict for that, but we certainly clearly have a widespread and systematic attack against civilians in Ukraine. Uh, and then we, have, uh, uh, then we have the crime of aggression, which is simply is, uh, for no lawful purposes, a nation invades another nation uh, to take it into its own, uh, for whatever purpose. Uh, it's the, the purpose. It's a political act move 
but it's uh, but it's unlawful. There's no legal sanction reason for them to do that. It has happened in Ukraine. And then, of course, we have uh, uh, the intent to destroy in whole or in part a peoples. And that is what we know as as genocide. So uh, that's about a thousand pages worth of jurisprudence in hundred words or less. That's <laughs> that, that's what we do on this program. Paul, you've also done extensive work on war crimes. How strong is the case against uh, Vladimir Putin and others in his chain of command? I mean, I've been watching things, and I, I'm 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 not a lawyer. I don't even play one on TV. Um, but uh, but I've I've been watching this and seeing to to me intuitively things like the forced deportation of civilians from Ukraine to Russia into filtration camps. The 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 forced deportation of children, the indiscriminate bombing of civilian centers, um, the mass executions. These things are just intuitively to a layman like myself uh, seem to constitute war crimes. How strong do you see this case against Putin? Well, Brian, the your, your question really hits to an important question is, whoa, all of a sudden there's this conflict and you know the president and others are identifying Putin as responsible for war crimes. We think back to Yugoslavia, Sierra Leone, Rwanda, it took months, if not years, to build the case or for the public narrative. But things are different now. And so I want to caution against anyone saying, whoa, how can you guys be serious about this case if you've moved so quickly? And there's there's a number of important reasons why it's moved quickly uh, and uh, why David, I, Mark, others can say with confidence that Putin is responsible for war crimes. The first is, he doesn't really deny it. <laughs> Usually the perpetrators kind of deny it, kind of pretend, well, all sides are equal. Whoa, this is confusing. He gives a glancing nod to fake news and staged, but he's not really serious about denying it. I don't think he minds that he's that he's a war criminal. The second thing is the amount of information that is available and the willingness of um, U.S. government and others, the British and, and the French, to make their quote-unquote intelligence available. And quite frankly, I think they did it because they knew that Google and, and the, the satellite companies were going to make this information available right off the bat. And they didn't want to be seen as playing old school you know, politics or old school analysis. But you can literally watch this happening in real time. Mm -hmm. The third reason is we made the mistakes before. Enough of us, and Mark can probably talk about this, remember back to the siege of Sarajevo. Ah, that's really confusing. Or the marketplace massacre. Oh, they must have shot a mortar up and dropped it back on themselves. You know, we got to investigate this. Look, we know we made mistakes with moral equivalence and trying to obfuscate the truth back in the past. So I think the world has learned its moral lesson and you can watch it. The other aspect is the Ukrainians. They're good on this. They are highly disciplined in terms of their troops, their volunteer forces. So you don't have this, well, Putin may be a bad actor or a bad guy, but look, look at the other side, all sides are equal, ancient hatreds, all very confusing. No, it's pretty much the Ukrainians are fighting by the rules of the book in a very desperate situation. Uh, and the Russians, the Russians aren't. And the Ukrainians are saying this is important to us. This narrative of accountability is important to us. With that, it's pretty clear with the evidence that you have a structure of law, which David outlined in 30 seconds or less. David's <laughs> never going to guest lecture in my class because what am I going to do the rest of the semester? <laughs> After David gives his presentation. Um, and then one last thing that I'll mention is 
David, Mark, others have been toiling away for, for 20, 25 years building an infrastructure of accountability. So that, Brian, when you host your podcast and you say, right, Putin, war criminal, how, why, when, people aren't thinking, wait, wasn't that Nuremberg, Tokyo? What are you talking about now? People know that there's an international criminal court. They know that, unfortunately, war crimes, genocide, crimes against humanity occur around the globe. Uh, and they know people can be held accountable for it. And that's why you see all of this attention paid to these war crimes that Putin is committing. Yeah, and, and Mark, uh, both Paul and David brought up the, the Balkan war crime uh, tr trials. You were, of course, involved in the prosecution of Serbian strongman Slobodan Milosevic and others in, in, in the Balkans. Um, a couple of questions. How does the case against Putin look to you? But what, more importantly, what lessons can we derive from your experience in prosecuting Milosevic and others in the, in the Serbian leadership? So thanks. I think something for me that I keep thinking about is the fact that when you watch the news, people say, you know, these are war crimes, you have to prosecute, and this is a slam dunk case, to borrow a phrase that was not greatly used in the past. And I think what I think about, um, having worked at the War Crimes Tribunal in The Hague, having gone from Gibson down a big law firm to the prosecution shop in The Hague, is the fact when you look at these cases, particularly leadership cases, um, when you're looking at prosecuting a president, a political leader, or military commanders, particularly generals, what's oftentimes the, the crux of the case is that linkage evidence between the senior command and actually war crimes on the ground. So when we watch the news, we're going to see, you know, terrible atrocities on the ground. You're going to say, this person must be responsible for this. In order to prove a case beyond a reasonable doubt, you really have to demonstrate the linkages between the war crimes on the ground and the senior leaders. And that usually means documents and insider witnesses. And so I think for many folks who watch, you know, uh, trials on television of, of you know, make-believe dramas and courtroom dramas, you have an eyewitness saying this person did it, and then you can put the person in jail. And the challenge of the cases, of course, is the person pulling the trigger is not the person we are oftentimes prosecuting in these trials. They are presidents, uh, they are, are general officers, senior politicians, and you have to demonstrate that this person at the top ordered or have the command responsibility for the crimes perpetrated on the ground. And that takes insider witnesses and documents. This is much like a kind of white collar prosecution case where you have to demonstrate through paper, so it's going to be boring, uh, or through insider witnesses to say, this is what this person said, and this is what they meant. And that's something where I think that, you know, particularly having David on the show is really important because you have to demonstrate the linkage between the president, the senior commanders, and the terrible atrocities on the ground. Well, let's let's stick with that because that's really a really a good point, David. I want to I wanted to kind of go to you next with this because do you see evidence of such linkage? I could say again, playing the layman here. I'm not a lawyer. Don't even play one on TV or on a podcast. But uh, but I mean, there was an article on April 3rd in Ria Novosti, which is a a major Russian uh, state-run news agency. Right? It's a state. Nothing gets in there without the sanction of the state. And there was this article called What to Do About Ukraine. And the general argument of the piece, and I've read a lot of propaganda, I would uh, Russian propaganda, I wouldn't re recommend it on my worst enemies. You need psychological counseling after, after going through it. But this thing made my jaw drop. I thought there was nothing that could surprise me. This surprised the hell out of me. The argument was as follows. Ukraine is a fake nation. It's an artificial construct. And Ukrainians are therefore Nazis and must be eliminated. 
Um, the Yale University history professor, Timothy Snyder, called this article a handbook for genocide. Now, I, I bring this up because making this link, be, I, I saw this as kind of demonstrating intent. And I was wondering if you saw that the same way or what other evidence do you see linking the senior leadership to these crimes on the ground? We make kind of two points. One is that just the, uh, these, these, these bold uh, uh, statements by the, the Russian government or their, or their mouthpiece, very similar to what we did in Rwanda with, uh, with the communication of sending out a radio message uh, to start a genocide that didn't end for uh, 90 days. Uh, this is where I, uh, I brought up when we were chatting just earlier, incitement to genocide. He is he's sending a signal through his mouthpiece uh, that these are subhumans, uh, that uh, they uh, they have license to kill. Uh, and so uh, it's a very uh, interesting legal theory. But, you know, if I was chief prosecutor, I would certainly have a team looking closely at that and potentially we might charge him with that incitement because of these what appears to be propaganda, but really our, uh, our messages uh, to all Russians, but also to his armed forces, that uh, anything goes. Whether it rises to the level of a specific intent to destroy in whole or in part a people's, not sure. But certainly just the idea of incitement uh, is, is yeah. a culpable offense. So there's that point. How do we get Putin? Well, the bottom line is this, under the co uh, concept of command responsibility, uh, anyone who is in a chain of command who directs or knows or uh, should know that there is war crimes being committed, literally has a duty to stop it. President Putin, very much like uh, President Biden, uh, is essentially the commander in chief of the Russian Federation Armed Forces. Therefore, he is in head. He's the, he's the number one guy. So regardless of, uh, of what happens after that, if he, says, if he said nothing other than unleash hell on Ukraine and sat back, uh, under the under the concept of uh, command responsibility, uh, he is individually criminally responsible for every act that his armed forces are perpetrating in the Ukraine. And that's how we took down uh, one of our theories of taking down President Charles Taylor of, of Liberia is the same thing. He was the head of their armed forces. He was uh, he was the political head of all of the forces fighting in the Sierra Leone. And so it was very, very easy just to uh, prove that he was the sitting head of state. We could prove that uh, Vladimir Putin is the sitting head of state of uh, the Russian Federation. Heck, we could almost stipulate to the fact that he is the president. But we could bring an expert in to show that. Once we show that he is the, uh, the, is the president of the Russian Federation and by the Russian Constitution, commander in chief of the Russian Armed Forces, we got him. And also, then what we do then is we would just go in and have experts come in and explain that. And we did that in our in our white paper, actually, uh, in uh, Appendix D, uh, most responsible parties. We lay, we've laid out all of those who bear the greatest responsibility for the invasion of Ukraine and the subsequent international crimes. So, uh, you know, any kind of atrocity investigation, any kind of atrocity prosecution, uh, they're never easy. Uh, and there's no such thing as a slam dunk case. My colleagues and I have been around the world too long to know that. <laughs> but, but we, this is this is, frankly, having done this before already, this is going to be an easier case than taking down President Charles Taylor of Liberia mm. uh, because he is so blatant about it. Two days ago, and I was watching this, and I said, "Perfect." I wish I was chief prosecutor because I'd take this guy down just on this. He awarded 
uh, a very senior unit award to the very unit that destroys Bucha right. and committed all those crimes. That in and of itself shows knowledge. And, and him condoning massacre, uh, that's called aggravating evidence. Mm -hmm. And my two colleagues and I would love to run with that because we would nail that. We would nail that into his forehead mm -hmm. because of just that. So, you know, bottom line is, uh, uh, frankly, uh, like I've already said, uh, he has gone well beyond the Rubicon. He has crossed the river. Uh, he is well down a road where uh, politically he's already illegitimate as far as the eyes of the international community. But now, you know, within an, an appropriate amount of time, we're going to have at least a minimum of one, but certainly two war crimes tribunals who are going to indict him for the crimes he's committing in the Ukraine. I was I was interested in the the part of your report that you referenced uh, here, David, and this is the the most responsible individuals. And of course, you named Putin, which is obvious. You named Valery Gerasimov, the chief of general staff, which is also obvious. You named Nikolai Budanovsky, who is a member of the general staff, um, responsible for disseminating the, the commander in chief's policies. Um, you named uh, you named Igor uh, Kostyukov, who's uh, the director of military intelligence. And you named uh, Salyukov, who is the commander in chief of the Russian ground forces. Why did you name those and why did you omit others like, for example, Sergei Shoigu, the, the minister of defense, or uh, Alexander Dvorkovich, the, uh, the, the new commander of the, of the operation in, in Ukraine? Well, uh, again, we, we, this is a, uh, a living and breathing document. Okay. <laughs> you know, this is an investigation. Uh, these are just most responsible parties, whether they're in fact indicted, depends on their direct culpability. I mean, this isn't; these aren't kangaroo courts. Right. I've got, I've got to show this individual uh, knew or should have known uh, and and help perpetrate uh, the the crimes. But I can assure you that uh, when uh, when the hammer comes down, you know, we have to we tend to just focus on Vladimir Putin, uh, but all of these individuals are clearly criminally potentially criminally responsible for this based on the command responsibility and also just direct action. Uh, some of these people are already uh, dead or dying or missing. Uh, uh, it's interesting, uh, uh, the Minister of Defense, that's why we didn't put him in, uh, suddenly had a, I think it was described as an unnatural heart attack. I yes. don't know what that means, but that means like throwing his body in front of a bullet. Yes. Uh, well, there was a there was a funny cartoon uh, about this that's had uh, Shoigu saying to Putin, "Sir, if I was going to commit suicide, if I was planning to commit suicide, would you tell me?" <laughs> <laughs> but the point is, it's just that you know. I mean, uh, you know, we uh, as we were compiling the list, they were already disappearing. Snipers got them, or uh, uh, or uh, like I said, these mm. unnatural heart attacks that everybody seems to be having, which is not unusual in a, uh, in a in a uh, working for a tyrant. But again, the bottom line is, uh, you know, we don't make final decisions until we have, uh, uh, you know, appropriate evidence beyond a reasonable doubt to indict these people. Because I think it's really, I understand, I know my colleagues know this, you can't make a mistake at the international level. In other words, you either got them or you don't. If you think you got them, then don't do it because uh, you can't have these people, uh, even though there's, you know, uh, acquitted and walk away from a international tribunal. Uh, that, at least that was my policy in, in West Africa. Nobody mm. walks away. I, they had to prove to me before I signed their indictments, uh, beyond a reasonable doubt, their cases. Mm. So when I sign the indictment, these guys will never see the light of a free day again under law, ethically. 
but so you can't you can't kind of wing it. I think he did it. Uh, you, you can't have the likes of these people and the most responsible parties uh, that, that, and the appendix D of that white paper walk away. Uh, right. you, know, you have to you have to be uh, sure that they are. So some of them uh, may not be culpable. Some we may not be able to prove, but certainly uh, the chain of command. And that's what we're going to focus on. You know, the prosecutor general of the Ukraine is looking at like individual Russian soldiers or smaller uh, unit commanders in locations that uh, he has he, she has jurisdiction over. But, you know, what we're looking at at the international level is uh, the greatest responsibility, you know, the, the higher chains of command. Uh, in this situation, because it's impractical. We can't prosecute the Russian Federation Armed Forces. So we go, uh, and I think this is the correct, and my, my colleagues will certainly echo this, this is the correct standard now at the international level is greatest responsibility. Some of the challenges that we had in Yugoslavia and Rwanda is that the mandate was prosecute everybody. And no, uh, no justice system can do that. And so that was uh, an initially frustrating, and Mark can certainly echo this, it was initially frustrating uh, part of your, the start of your investigations is you can't prosecute 35,000, 100,000 people for that. So uh, greatest responsibility, which uh, was begun in the, uh, the tribunal in, in Sierra Leone, is the correct standard at the international level. You know, go, it's basically the same standard that we used uh, uh, after the London Agreement in 1945 uh, in Nuremberg. Uh, they went after the big guys. Uh, and there were subsequent trials afterwards uh, appropriately. So uh, anyway, there it is. Uh, uh, yeah, and I, I want to pick up on some of that because I, I, the other obvious kind of thing about, you know, in, in terms of parsimony in these prosecutions is what charges you bring. You're going to want to bring the charges you can actually prove. And as I'm looking at this list of things, it seems like aggression, violation of the laws of armed conflict, crimes against humanity. It seems like there's an escalation ladder in terms of the degree of difficulty here, if, if I'm reading this correctly. And please correct me if I'm wrong about that. But at the top of that escalation ladder, of course, is the G word. Right. The G word that President Biden uh, actually famously used last week. And I want to kind of zero in on that with you a bit, Paul, um, because, I mean, the proving genocide is, in my understanding, very, very hard. And I want to I mean, and there are certain things that I for me seem to point to it. Me, uh, taking children from Ukraine and moving them to Russia and reeducating them in Russia and putting them with Russian parents intuitively to me sounds kind of genocide-y, um, if you will. An article in a state-run media outlet that is saying Ukraine isn't even a nation and therefore doesn't have a right to exist and has to be eliminated. Um, the country has to be broken up into small parts and everybody has to be re-educated because they're just confused Russians. That sounds kind of genocide-y to me. How hard, is the ge how hard is it to prove the genocide case in, in this situation? Yeah, no, I'm glad you asked this question, Brian, because I think this is another situation where the, the global community is catching up to reality. I think David in his white paper is, is ahead of the curve where we all belong. And I think that curve is going to move quite quickly, even in the coming days. And what I mean by this is traditionally it's been very difficult to prove genocide because it's the one crime that requires intent. There has to be an intent to destroy a group in whole or in part. There's also been the political environment in which the term genocide uh, operates. Uh, every um, population which experiences atrocities 
feels compelled to, to claim and then to prove that it's genocide. And so there's oftentimes a reaction of, whoa, these things can be war crimes, they can be crimes against humanity, but but every bad thing that happens isn't isn't genocide. So we're all on our guard, as, as, as David said, as, as Mark indicated, not to just jump out of the gun and say, crimes against humanity, genocide, terrible things, oh my, we have to solve this. Because then someone comes in and says, well, where's your proof of intent? Oh, okay. All right, so maybe it's not genocide. And then see, you're a bunch of hyperbolic lawyers who are, you know, um, you know, trying to roust up young people to go to your law schools. Uh, <laughs> but, but here, as you say, Brian, you've got Putin out there saying, yeah, we should go in and, and we should do this. There's, there's clear indications of, of intent and the narrative has changed. You know, a few weeks ago, Secretary Blinken came out and acknowledged that there was a genocide against the Rohingya committed by the government of Myanmar. It took three years right. for the, the, the U.S. government to come around. It took 100 so, years to do the to, to admit the Armenian one. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> so, so you see that type of uh, historical, and that's what I mean by the historical baggage. There's been a real reluctance of the institutions. Right. And you saw this in, in four different instances. President Biden came out and said, war crimes. And then the, the machinery of the U.S. government said, no, no, this is President Biden. He misspoke again. And he's like, no, no, I didn't misspoke. War crimes. That was number two. Then a few days later, the Bucha massacre evidence came out and he was like, see, I was right. It's like, well, you are the president. You're always right when it comes to the government. <laughs> uh, but he was still sort of looking to the other 12,000 employees at the, at the, you know, whomever and saying, yeah, I was right. And then now he's right out of front on genocide. genocide he did say, yeah. oh, and the lawyers will, will, will noodle the T's in the eyes. But we've had a change of, of our realization that genocide actually happens, you know, more frequently than we would like to, to admit. Um, and you still have people who think it's okay, like President Putin. And so they, they express their intent, um, in part to incite their forces to commit this crime of genocide. Yeah, and we've seen this again and again and again. I, mean, I referenced this Ria Novosti article that came out on April 3rd, but we also saw it in Putin's speech on the 24th and uh, uh, launching the war. We saw it in Putin's art so-called article about Ukrainian history that was published last July um, that kind of was the really the, fir the first sign. David, you wanted to jump in. Oh, just real quickly, you know, and I, uh, I'm always, I always uh, learn a great deal from Paul. Uh, I've been learning a great deal from Paul for 20 years, uh, but I do have to underscore. Here's a foot, important footnote here, and I know he'll agree with me. There is no tier system in international. I mean, in international crimes. Uh, that's something that has been falsely uh, inserted by politicians and diplomats, in the sense of you have 80,000 people killed. Whether it's a genocide, crime against humanity, or war crimes, they're just as dead. Uh, you know, I've, I've, you know, and throughout my many years in this business, I'm always frustrated by uh, by politicians saying, "Well, it's it's only a war crime, or it's only crime against humanity, but it's not genocide. Therefore, uh, it's not as important, and therefore we don't have to do something right away." Because you know, there's this there's this terminology in the genocide convention saying. If you find there's a genocide, then all signatories to that convention have to do something about it. Uh, and uh, so it, it's just kind of a footnote to what uh, Paul has correctly said, is that there is no tiered system. So you kind of implied that in when you opened up this piece of the questioning. Uh, I meant in terms of degree of difficulty in terms of proving the case. Right. And of course, uh, uh, genocide is very difficult to prove. You almost have to have a smoking gun. 
Uh, and uh, and so, but it doesn't matter in some ways because we've got him on war crimes, crimes against humanity mm -hmm. and aggression. And I think we certainly have, and I think Paul uh, and Mark will agree, uh, incitement to genocide, mm -hmm. which is a crime too. Uh, and I think that that's more provable because it's already out there. Uh, and you, you know, you both show, I, I, I said this, and then you have someone saying, I interpreted it as take care of these people, mm -hmm. uh, you know, kill them all. Uh, and he's already sending, saying things like that at Mariupol and other places like that. It basically he's saying no prisoners, which is kind right. of like, uh, like 13th century warfare. You know, when Henry V was fighting the French at Ag Agincourt, you know, no prisoners. Uh, kill them all. So, you know, this is just amazing. In, in, the, in 2022, we're still worried about that. Mm. Mark, before we go to break and move into the second segment, I did want to go to you one more time because you were obviously uh, a member of a prosecutorial team that did, did successfully prosecute genocide. Um, so what uh, can, can you speak to this discussion about the difficulty of prosecuting genocide? So I'll, I'll agree with my colleagues that this is not easy to do. Getting into someone's mind and trying to demonstrate their intent uh, takes real work. Uh, as I said before, it takes insider witnesses, it takes documents, it takes a lot of effort by a large group of investigators and prosecutors to convince a judge or a group of judges that this, in fact, is the intent. And so the thing that I think frustrates me when I see a lot of commentators talking about this on television is there seems to be this desire to claim it so we can move on and then we have to do something about these cases. And to, to David and Paul's points, you know, these people are still dead. Whether or not the international community, whether or not people decide to act or not, should not determine, be determinative of whether or not the G word is invoked or used. These people are still getting killed and we still need to act and do something. In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion and look at the politics and mechanics of actually bringing war crimes case against the leader of a nuclear armed superpower. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Hillsborough, North Carolina is David Crane, the founding prosecutor at the U.S. UN Special Court for Sierra Leone and a distinguished scholar in residence at Syracuse University's College of Law. David is also the author of an important new white paper outlining Russian war crimes in Ukraine. And joining us from Washington, D.C. is Paul Williams, the Rebecca I. Grazier Professor of Law and International Relations at the American University and co-founder of the Public International Law and Policy Group. And also joining us from our nation's capital is Mark Vlasich, a senior fellow and adjunct professor of law at Georgetown University who served as the youngest prosecutor in the trial of Slobodan Milosevic and the Srebrenica genocide case at the UN War Crimes Tribunal in The Hague. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at PowerVertical.org, and you can follow us on the Twitter at PowerVertical. I called it genocide because it's become clearer and clearer that Putin is just trying to wipe out the idea of even being able to be a Ukrainian. And uh, the, mount, the evidence is mounting. So prosecuting Slobodan Milosevic or Charles Taylor for war crimes is one thing. But prosecuting the leader of a nuclear-armed superpower and member of the UN Security Council is something else entirely. In this segment, I wanted to discuss two aspects of this. 
First, the mechanics, and second, the politics. David, how would the mechanics of this actually play out? And it's my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that there are three possible venues, the International Criminal Court, an ad hoc tribunal, or in a national court under universal jurisdiction. It's my understanding that the International Criminal Court has started an investigation, as have the Ukrainians. Um, walk us forward uh, through this, if you would. How, how could this really play out in practice? For one thing, it's very important for us to get this straight. We've already done this before. Uh, and you know the magnitude, uh, really, we uh, in some ways, that's a little bit of dust in the air. The only difference between President Charles Taylor and President Vladimir Putin is nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really critical. And a UN Security Council seat. Well, again, uh, that's frankly irrelevant because mm -hmm. they can't do anything about it anyway. Uh, and I'll explain why in a minute. Okay. Uh, but again, we have to uh, and we have to step away from the nuclear threat, because if we don't, then all of a sudden, anybody that owns nuclear weapons is impecunious. In other words, we're not going to prosecute them because they have their thumb on the button. So I think this is, and I, I think we should discuss this in the political aspects of this. Uh, the way I'm approaching this, and, I, and frankly, I, I think the world is doing, is yeah, that's there. We're watching it. We're going to do something, you know, if he does something stupid. But, you know, we're talking the end of the world kind of thing. And, mm -hmm. and then the rest of it doesn't matter. So we're all moving forward according to uh, our tried and true procedures now and the jurisprudence and the experience. We have a deep bench using the basketball term, of people who can do this. It's been done before. So again, I really want to blow the myth away that there's something strange and, and, and brand new about this. We have a head of state who's committed international crimes. We have a body of law and rules of procedure and evidence that can prosecute him. So we need to kind of make that, like, put that on the table, frankly. Mm -hmm. Now, the International Criminal Court, under its rules of procedure, uh, is moving forward with a preliminary investigation. And when they get to the point, and it won't be too long, because as uh, Kareem Khan has stated, the prosecutor of the ICC, the entire country is a crime scene. So he has a legal standard, uh, you know, uh, uh, probable cause to believe that a crime has been committed and certain people have committed those crimes. Now, when I was chief prosecutor, I raised the level only because I wanted to make sure that there was no mistake. When you're taking, if you're going after a head of state, you've already, you have to have a solid case before you even sign the indictment because you can't have a head of state be acquitted. It's just not, you know, it could be, but if you don't do your job, that'll happen. So you have to be really, really clear about that. If you, because if you don't, then uh, something very, very uh, tragic is going to happen. And that is that. So again, I think it's really, really critical that we all understand this. So uh, International Criminal Court uh, is going to reach up at a particular time, whenever that's appropriate, under their rules of procedure and evidence, and they will issue an indictment against Vladimir Putin for war crimes and crimes against humanity, uh, potentially incitement of genocide. Uh, but again, like you've been talking, that remains to be seen. But again, you can always amend the indictment if mm. there's sufficient evidence. The domestic side, you're correct. That's the that's the third of the of the three, and that is. Any member state who has the jurisdiction uh, in their own domestic statute to prosecute war crimes under a universal jurisdiction standard uh, can, in fact, open investigations, and, and it's happened. Uh, we see that in Europe uh, across the board, and of course, the prosecutor general uh, in Ukraine is, is doing that as well. So that's 
that's another political problem or a legal problem for those who are committing the greatest responsibility. But again, anybody that's committing crimes. And I think it's important. I know we're doing this at the Global Accountability Network. Uh, these investigations have to be neutral. And I know that Kareem Khan is, I'm sure, doing this in the sense that he's looking at everybody. In other words, mm -hmm. no one's above the law. So we have allegations that there are certain units that in the Ukrainian army that have shot prisoners of war. War crime. Can't be done. Now, I don't think it raises the level of international prosecution, but certainly uh, the prosecutor general in Ukraine can prosecute those, as, frankly, uh, other domestic nations, if they so choose, or if that person happened to be in their jurisdiction. Now, the middle one, the second one, is where these efforts have to be worked on. We have this peculiar kind of legal uh, twist where the ICC does not have jurisdiction over the crime of aggression. And I don't want to make your listeners' heads explode as to why, other than that's a fact. Mm. So because of that and because the aggressive act by the Russian Federation is that what caused all this, and we have a lot of other strong men who would love to would do something with nations next to them, we have to prosecute the crime of aggression. It just has to happen. Uh, right now, we don't have the, a, a body that can do that. So we can do this like we did with Sierra Leone. The, uh, the UN General Assembly acting outside the UN Security Council. Okay, I, this is this is important. I thought it, I thought it was the Security Council. The only Security no, Council. No, it's not. Okay. Uh, and and uh, under the uh, UN statute, uh, uh, you can uh, charter. Uh, you can, in fact, uh, have extraordinary you know moments of uh, of uh, extraordinary moments where the General Assembly can basically step over the UN Security Council. And they've done this rarely, but it has happened uh, to include creating the mechanism for Syria. Uh, Etc. And the General Assembly has really shown leadership in condemning the invasion and also condemning uh, the uh, uh, the actual uh, uh, violations of humanitarian law in the Ukraine. So there's two uh, extraordinary measures by the General Assembly uh, uh, stating what they want to do. So logically, a third uh, uh, movement would be to authorize the Secretary General to enter into negotiations with the Republic of Ukraine and create the world's second hybrid international war crimes tribunal mm. called the Special Court for Ukraine. Okay, uh, That can be done fairly quickly. I mean, I've been working with a couple of other very senior people. We went back and looked at the statute created the uh, one in Sierra Leone, uh, and uh, it's almost, uh, uh, it, it could be quickly done in an appropriate amount of time, but it could be done certainly this year, and certainly even by this summer of, of, of creating a Special Court for Ukraine uh, with, the, with the mandate of prosecuting those who bear the greatest responsibility for the crime of aggression in the Ukraine. Now, these two bodies, these courts, would work side by side, sharing information uh, closely. Uh, I think the Special Court for Ukraine should be located close, if not in the Ukraine, uh, but certainly Poland or a, a close country, uh, symbolically, uh, and then move into the Ukraine uh, permanently when that makes uh, practical and military mm. sense. So that's how it would happen. And, it, and, and so it's, you know, like I said, there's a, there's a blueprint. It's just a matter of taking that blueprint and uh, dusting it off and, and moving forward. Uh, there are other theories that I, you know, I've heard discussions. I know that Gordon Brown and, and there's a team in the United Kingdom that are talking about is it a, almost like a Cambodian court. In other words, a, an extraordinary chambers within the Ukrainian government. Uh, yeah, I could see that. 
but it 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 loses its international imperator. Mm. This is this is a crime against the international community. And so my respectful retort to doing something like that would be, you know, this we need to have a international tribunal related to aggression at the same stature as the International Criminal Court. Because you really do want to lay I mean this is this should be the first and last time we prosecute the crime of aggression. So we have to drive a stake into this vampire mm. uh, now and forever. Because if we don't, again, we're, we're, we're going down a very, very dangerous road. Paul, anything to add to that? Yeah, I would, just picking up on David's notion and then Mark's literally thought, full court press. Um, this is, uh, since we're using various metaphors in this podcast today, uh, this is an ideal situation for a full court press on accountability, international criminal court for the crimes that it can deal with, a hybrid tribunal for the crime of aggression. And then the Ukrainian prosecutor's office has their act together, both collecting evidence, uh, you know, ensuring that, you know, that the legal house is in order for the thousands of commanders and soldiers who are committing these crimes. Because the one thing, as, as David mentioned, this is a, a crime against humanity um, at the largest level. And then it's also a crime against individuals in their villages. And this is a challenge for uh, accountability and, and international justice. But I think we have a situation here where the Ukrainians are so, the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian people are so dedicated to accountability that we can not only put a stake in the vampire of aggression, but hopefully drive that stake further into um, this notion that it's okay to commit these types of crimes. If someone thinks, well, not only is the president and the minister of defense, but also the soldier, someone had to be shooting these people on the back of the head. Um, if they're also culpable, maybe they'll start thinking twice about committing these crimes. And this is why uh, I'm encouraged, given the approach that the international community has taken, given the approach the Ukrainians have taken, that you really can infuse justice into this process, accountability into this conflict, in order to start chilling some of those atrocities that are occurring and will continue to occur unless someone's held accountable. Yeah, and I, I mean, agreeing with all of that, there is still this thousand-pound gorilla in the room uh, to, to, to probably torture a metaphor here. But, uh, but uh, and that is that I have a hard time imagining, as somebody who follows Russian politics for a living, uh, seeing Vladimir Putin in the inside of a courtroom. I just have a hard time imagining that. Um, now, thinking back to the 90s, I had a hard time imagining Slobodan Milosevic in the inside of a courtroom. Mark, you faced him in the inside of a courtroom. Could you speak to that? So I think this is an excellent point and something where I just want to take a step back and reflect on how unique this conversation is that we're having today. For thousands of years, if you are a terrible dictator and you hurt, killed, maimed, you know, hundreds, thousands, millions of people, you always got away with it. When I was in school at university at Georgetown, when every one of this show was at university, none of us knew a world where a leader, a president, a head of state stood crimes for war crimes. It had simply never happened. Frankly, when I was at the War Crimes Tribunal in The Hague, working on the Milosevic, or the, the Sharinsa case, Milosevic had been indicted. It frankly did not occur to me that he would be arrested and transferred to The Hague. It did not occur to me until he actually was arrested 
And then, frankly, I didn't think he'd come to The Hague until he showed up in The Hague. And I remember walking out to the, the terrace overlooking the front lawn of the war crimes tribunal, seeing every CNN, BBC news truck from around the world beaming in this historic war crimes trial. And so I think what is kind of important to me is the fact that there was a dent in the universe made with that trial. That continued with the Charles Taylor trial, which we've heard um, from today, from David, from the Tom Sane trial and others. And it has really changed the perspectives of so many people because now there is an expectation that if you're a terrible person, a terrible leader, and you're responsible for the deaths of hundreds or thousands of people or more, that you should stand trial. And I think that is really important for us to recognize that this is, frankly, a new experiment in international law where you're working through this. But it's because of a lot of really hard work, particularly from the people that you're hosting here today, Brian, mm -hmm. and their colleagues, that we are in a position to have these conversations. And so I think this has completely changed the perspective in terms of what other people expect. And it's something that we need to do, move cautiously and thoughtfully to make sure that we've learned the lessons from those previous war crimes tribunals and experiences investigating and prosecuting in these cases. And I mean, I agree with that. And when I think back to the, the, the how Milosevic ended up being arrested in standing trial, I mean, we all remember the history. He lost an election in October of 2000. Um, I do not see Vladimir Putin losing an election. Um, I do not see a free and fair election taking place in Russia. So the only reason Slobodan Milosevic was brought to justice is because of because he lost power because there was regime change in Serbia. Um, so is I mean I, I kind of I want to kind of go forward on this and think this through about. If I mean, is do we proceed even if we're not going to get Putin physically in a courtroom? David, well, look. Or, uh, well, look. Let me just tell you right now. Uh, uh, again, uh, the indictments will happen uh, mm -hmm. at the appropriate time. Uh, he will be an indicted international criminal. Uh, he doesn't have to be present in the courtroom when that indictment is issued, and that arrest warrant is issued. You have to underscore that. So he'll be sitting in Russia, and there may become a political moment circumstance, what have you, that he will be handed over. I mean, President Charles Taylor never thought that he would be held accountable for what he had done, the murder rate, maiming and mutilation of over 1.2 million human beings. He now sits in Her Majesty's maximum security prison in the United Kingdom for the rest of his life. So once you are indicted as a war criminal, there's no statute of limitations. In other words, that's for life. There will come a, 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 a potential circumstance where uh, he will be handed over. It took two years for them to hand Mo Charles Taylor over to mm -hmm. us for a fair and open trial, but it happened. Uh, and so uh, there is there there may be. It doesn't matter in some ways because also one is his commanders are going to be prosecuted, his uh, soldiers are going to be prosecuted. Uh, this is a years-long series of trials, uh, and like I said, uh, you know justice will be done. The very fact that we, you know, so let's not uh, make him 10 feet tall. Uh, he, right now, for all intents and purposes, in my opinion, he's already done. He's no longer a legitimate head of state. Uh, and uh, he, and the world knows that. Uh, you know, Russia is no longer a viable, other than the fact they have nuclear weapons, it's important, but they're no longer a viable world power. Their economy will, it will take, I read somewhere recently, that it'll take a generation for yep. the Russian economy to come back. They're done uh, at many levels. 
And so what what the, what I see happening going forward, and I agree with you, David. There's there's going to be an indictment uh, that seems pretty pretty uh, pretty certain at this point. Um, I also think the possibility in the near term, at least, of regime change in Russia is remote. Um, so what this effectively means is Putin and others in his chain of command are going to be effectively under house arrest in Russia. They're not going to be able to ever leave Russia or Belarus or you know other 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 friendly states. Is that what we're looking at going forward, Paul? We're looking at two things going forward. One is essentially, as you say, under house arrest or under country arrest. The other very important dimension is that it provides moral clarity for how the war ends. At some point, this will move into a peace negotiation and, and not predicting this, but you'll see the West be like, <sighs> okay, Ukraine, cut a deal. The Russians can keep Crimea. They can keep whatever they've had, grabbed mm -hmm. in 2014 plus others. Um, and how about a little bit of this and a little bit of that? And this is where it'll be helpful to remind everybody that this territory was captured by an individual who committed atrocity crimes. And that is what the Ukrainians are gonna need to, to push back against a, okay, now let's get to yes. Let's just right. get to this, this indictment or the, the articulation of war crimes provides that moral clarity that's important to stop the appeasement and the accommodation that unfortunately we're going to see in the next phase of this process. Yeah, no, I, this is something I'm concerned about. And if there is pressure on Ukraine to cut such a deal, myself and others here in Washington are going to be screaming from the rooftops uh, about that. The other, the flip side of this, people have argued that a war crimes prosecution might make it more difficult to reach a peace agreement. David, I see you shaking your head no uh, vehemently, so jump in here, please. You know, you hear that a lot. You know, uh, it's a peace versus justice kind of argument. Do we have justice first and peace or peace than justice? Uh, it's just we have an individual who's committed a crime and he needs to be held accountable for it. If we get it all caught up in, uh, well, it'll delay the peace. No, I think it'll actually solidify the peace. Mm -hmm. It will. Uh, and, and, and Paul is spot on. There's a moral clarity to this. It crystallizes everything. All of a sudden, everything, you know, we're, what ends up happening is uh, at the, on the other side of the table, you're dealing with a war criminal. So there's a legitimacy issue too. Mm. They are they are politically weak going into a negotiation just by that fact, mm. uh, and that actually I think uh, uh, really assists in coming to an appropriate conclusion. So I I always push back on this thing. Well, you know, let's just have peace and uh, you know buy the world a coke and live in harmony. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. We got a bad we got a bad guy. He needs to be put in jail. Uh, and, uh, you know, nothing's easy in life, but, uh, we need to move forward and we need to appropriately indict him under, uh, under law and ethics and move forward and not, and, and not get caught up in the, 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 the clarion call of people saying, no, this will delay, delay peace. And the answer is, you know, over time, it will be more of a peaceful solution. Mm. From your lips to God's ears, and that's a, probably a, better, a good way to, to, to wrap it up as I'm looking at the clock, and that's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Hillsboro, North Carolina, has been David Crane, the founding prosecutor at the UN Special Corp 
Jennifer Sierra Leone, a distinguished scholar in residence at Syracuse University's College of Law. And joining us from our nation's capital has been Paul Williams, the Rebecca Glazier Professor of Law and International Relations at American University and co-founder of the Public International Law Policy Group. And also joining us from our nation's capital has been Mark Vlasich, a professor at law at Georgetown University who serves on the prosecution team in the war crimes trial of Slobodan Milosevic. Thank you all for an enlightening discussion and making us all a whole lot smarter. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, uh, thank yeah, our thanks, Ryan. Our pleasure. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Legas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Zachary Smith handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many, many, many messes and making us all sound a whole lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a big, fat five-star rating interview as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.